Welcome to Think Orphan, the podcast for orphan excellence. Real talk with real people navigating the global orphan crisis. Welcome back to Think Orphan podcast. Man, this is this is kind of weird. I'm not going to lie, Brandon. I've never, I just haven't been on this side of it. I haven't been on the bringing it in, introducing it. We're at, we, we've literally like, we've reached a new era of Think Orphan podcast and I'm excited about it. I don't know about you. How are, how are you doing now that you're ready for this first interview yeah. that we get to do together? Pretty cool, huh? I, I am excited. And, uh, and you know, there's a first time for everything, Phil. So you're, you're never, I'm not going to make any uh, assumptions about your age or anything, but, but you're never too old to learn something new. So uh, welcome to opening the the podcast. You don't get to rely on Rick or Karen or Kelly. Uh, that 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 was your gig, and and you handled you handled it masterfully. So what well, I thank say. You. So fortunately, yeah. I've been doing it on a couple other podcasts. So oh, okay. I, well, I've gotten some practice, but it's still kind of weird doing it here. I almost said the <laughs> name of my other podcast. So we're not going to do that right now. But we we do have a great show. So we, you know, we could go back and forth on all the cool stuff about that we're excited about. We've already done that. If you didn't listen to that last episode and you're wondering what the heck is going on, where is Rick and you miss him? I miss him too. You know, and I'm sure Brandon misses him too, even though he never did an episode with him until that last one. But we talked all about the reasons why Rick um, is needing to step away on that last episode that we did the season nine preview and uh, the episode where we said goodbye to Rick as our co-host. And we said hello to, and we passed the baton to Brandon as the new co-host, which we're very excited about. So Brandon, tell us who we have today. Yeah, I'm really uh, excited to be getting into some of these uh, guests that we uh, have here for season nine. And uh, today we've got uh, one of, honestly, one of my my favorite organizations. Uh, uh, We're gonna have the global director of Global Child Advocates. Her name is Ashley Heiligman. And uh, she's gonna be coming in. She's gonna be sharing about uh, lessons that they've learned. Uh, They've been working in Thailand and Myanmar for some time. Uh, She's gonna be sharing with us about, yeah, just their experience. Um, Obviously, when I say Myanmar, um, people are probably aware of of all the news uh, coming out this year with the military coup. So we're gonna get into that. We're gonna get into all sorts of things and just uh, learn from the wisdom that Ashley and her team have uh, been able to garner over the years. Sounds great. Well, let's get to it. Oh, well, Ashley, it is an uh, honor and uh, just uh, so fun to be able to uh, connect with you today and, and have you on the Think Orphan podcast. You are warmly welcomed. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thank you. I so appreciate being able to be here and I've respected both of you guys for a long time. So I love being able to, to talk with y'all. Well, it's, it's, it's very fun to have you on. Uh, I've enjoyed getting con- to connect with you over the last year or so, uh, just uh, the opportunity to uh, collaborate and meet between our agencies and just have so much respect for what you guys are doing at Global Child Advocates, just really tremendous work in Southeast Asia. Um, you know, maybe some of our uh, listeners are not yet familiar with the work that Global Child Advocates is, is doing or um, not familiar with, uh, with, with you and your background. So uh, would you... Uh, uh, enlighten us, share us, with us a little bit about your background in working with at-risk children and orphans and, and really how did, how did God lead you to this place? Yeah, and so I have had a passion for child protection my whole life. I remember when I was, like the images of children in Romanian orphanages that came out in the 90s, I was like nine years old and I just remember being so struck by that. And so when I learned about social work. When I got to college and learned about the social work field, it just seemed like the perfect fit. It was kind of everything that 
aligns with my heart. And I was like, you can get paid to do this. Now you don't get paid very much, but <laughs> you can get paid to actually care for people and meet their needs and kind of understand how the human psyche works. Um, and so that was a really natural fit. I got my bachelor's in that and then later on got my master's in direct practice so that I could understand. I'm really fascinated by the trauma and like the brain neuroscience. I'm just not quite, I'm not really smart enough to be one of those people. So I just, direct practice is what really draws me in. So um, I moved to Thailand in 2009 um, and lived there for two years. And I think that was, it was really my first exposure to major poverty, to trafficking. Um, I did that through an exposure, a missions exposure, met an organization that was doing good work, like a grassroots group. And so that period of time really shaped my entire trajectory. I think just opened my eyes to a lot of the reasons children are vulnerable, opened my eyes to the impact of institutional care of, of children's homes. And so, yeah, I think that's, I wouldn't, there's nothing else I could do with my life now. I'm kind of stuck in this place because I just, I love it so much. And then also it's just always on my, on my mind and on my heart. And so it's fun to be in networks like you're talking about that we're able to collaborate on all that stuff. So yeah. yeah, that's awesome. And and one of the things that you that you kind of just alluded to there. So you were living in Thailand for a time. Uh, you're in the states now, but you continue to lead uh, global child advocates, which I'm aware just you know from knowing your guys's background. Actually, used to be um, known by a different name and go by a different model of care. Um, so global child advocates uh, formerly operated uh, in a residential model, and and I could kind of get a sense a little bit from from even your answer there. Um, just kind of learning, you know, there were some things that were maybe were done well, but overall there were some things that, that just, it wasn't hitting the mark for you guys. So, yeah. so, you know, understanding that you guys formerly operated as a children's home, you know, what led you guys to transition to family care and what did that look like? Yeah. Um, so the founders were really good hearted, had a passion for children, started children's homes based on encountering children on the streets in Thailand that were evidently being beaten if they didn't make enough money when they got home because they were begging or they were working, they were collecting recyclables. And so these stories, I'm not sure how much they were verified at the time, but they, you know, it's heartbreaking. So initially as Safe Home was opened, and then I think because just being in that area, it's a very high vulnerability area for children, more and more children kept being referred to us. So one home turned into four homes pretty quickly. And yeah, so I think even the founders always knew that it wasn't maybe the best model for kids, but didn't know that there was anything else possible. Like in this yeah. space, there wasn't foster care. There wasn't, the government wasn't doing a lot. Mainly the government, if they picked up a child, they would either be deported or they mm. would be kind of deported independently alone across the border. And the kids would end up coming home to their families or they would just put them in a children's home and they were kind of done with it. Um, and so I think over that time, just, once we discovered that family care was possible and we had different people, McPeace actually came out like in 2013, kind of opened our eyes to the fact that family-based care was happening globally and that it was possible and there were ways to recruit families or to even re reunify children with like kinship cares and such. Um, once we learned it was possible, Daniel is our Asia director and he was, we were all just extremely excited about it and just didn't know how. So we got some help in learning how to do it. And then seeing that impact from the children being in care to them being in families is just, it's its undeniable that it's a better situation for kids. And it just, yeah. I think that that's what's made us such huge advocates in this space because we just feel so confident that it's, we've seen the impact of even, we were running the best care possible. I'm not the best, I don't know if it's best care possible, the best that we could do, like our teams were doing the best they could, but 
just the nature the the nature of being in a home rather than a family obviously just has a totally different impact on a child and how they grow up. And so, um, so yeah, it was definitely something yeah. we realized needed to happen. And then once we were able to, just felt so grateful for the help that we had had. And, and then we just want to advocate that and help others do the same. So. Yeah. One of the things that you mentioned there, and I don't know if people uh, picked up on this, but I certainly did. And, you know, getting to collaborate with you, uh, learning a little bit about Global Child Advocates, um, you guys are kind of hitting a unique uh, population of children. And one of the things you just said is that sometimes the government would interact with kids on the street and they would deport them. So that uh, kind of indicates that there's that there's a different international kind of dynamic here uh, with the population that you guys are specifically serving and, and being close to the border of, of two different countries. Yeah. What are some of those um, vulnerable groups that Global Child Advocates is serving? And, you know, what did your transition mean, you know, for for kind of operating with two with with uh, people from two different nationalities in two different countries what uh, what what did that look like for you guys um it's complicated you know it's a that's a whole different dynamic that we face like when you're talking it with these other groups that have done transition or that are talking about that just it's a little bit complicated but it's possible which is really neat it's it's primarily obviously now people realize what's happening in Myanmar and the situation that's happening in Myanmar right now is very similar to what was happening 10 years ago. So in 2011, when I first, I guess that was when I moved home, but when I was living there, it was a lot of turmoil and then some things changed. And for 10 years, they were making progress, but that never really trickled down to the people. It hadn't gotten a chance to trickle down to actually have sustainable solutions for poverty or anything that had gone, I mean, everything that had been destroyed over the previous decades. Um, and so you have families that are coming across the border to work, um, they're working in, there are tons of factories within the Mesot area, so they're kind of exploited by labor. There's traffickers that are paid, like a, people can pay traffickers to take them to Bangkok to work. And sometimes that works, and sometimes they end up in the sex trade. So it's a, it's a very vulnerable dynamic, but because people are desperate for income, because they're desperate for opportunity, they'll take risks that other people wouldn't, that you wouldn't normally take if you weren't faced with that much vulnerability. So, um, yeah. yeah, so we primarily work with a lot of communities where it's a migrant community that's been there even for generations, but sometimes the children are sent out to beg or to work because the parents are more easily deported, more easily picked up and deported or bribed or all their money is taken. So children are pretty scrappy. In fact, this is funny. We had a videographer that wanted to do a day in the life of a street kid and he came and he was a bigger guy and he like couldn't do it because the street kids can take off and they know all the back alleys and the like cracks between the buildings that are this big. And so there was just, it's just a funny, it's an interesting dynamic, but the kids are just the best kids in the world. I mean, just the, the kids on the street, even the, as vulnerable as they are, I ran a drop-in center for the two years that I was there and they just, they're incredible and yeah. so resilient. I mean, the people from Myanmar are just incredibly resilient, so. Yeah, absolutely. So, so, so resilient and, you know, uh, 
as you guys did transition and, you know, you had a lot of uh, kids, you're serving a lot of Burmese people. So people from Myanmar, but you guys are located in Thailand. Um, you know, so your guys' situation was, is quite unique, you know, kind of straddling these two different nations. Um, but, you know, from your guys' experience, as you transition to family-based care, connected with people like Mick Peace and, and SFAC, who are, who are friends of, of the podcast as well, um, what are some of those lessons that you guys learned that, that you could share? You know, there, there may be other people that are listening to the podcast, like your guys' founders, they're saying, hey, you know, we, um, we, we agree that it would be best if kids can be in a more in family or at least more like family, alternative family if necessary and, and so forth. Um, but we don't know what that looks like. What are some lessons learned uh, from, from you guys uh, that maybe you could pass along to, to somebody that, that is maybe thinking through this for the first or second time? Yeah. Um, I love that you're asking that question because there are so many questions or barriers that people feel up front. Um, I think for us, it takes time. And I think sometimes that even once, at one point our founders tried to put like a time frame on it, like a deadline of like, we're going to close the homes on this date. And it was really difficult because it, you just can't do that with kids. Because if you don't have a placement, if you don't have a home, especially in our situation, a unique thing about us being in the, with refugees and with the migrant population and many of the families being from Myanmar, we had a much higher percentage of kids that went into foster care. So families we had recruited and trained through the local church, we had like 43% that went into foster care instead of being reunified or in kinship care. And so being flexible and making sure that it's focused on the child's best interest um, was really, really important. And then I think we also learned that for the older kids in our care, that it was very um, important for us to listen to their perspective and allow them to participate and really respect their, their perspective in it. Because we had committed to them and we still have kids that we that are 20, 21, that we still engage, that joined our social enterprise um, at the time that we were transitioning. But we had committed to them at such a young age that we really are their people. And so even though that's not a sustainable long-term continue doing. It's something that for the, this specific group of kids, we're, we're like, we've talked to our staff and to our team and we're their family and we have to recognize that. And so it's a huge commitment when people open a home to recognize that if you're gonna take them out of their family, you gotta be everything for them. And so um, I think we just learned so many things. I think the biggest thing being just seeing how important even, I think often for trafficking victims, the perspective is that you know, you don't want to have a children's home, but you, a shelter for trafficking victims sounds good and that makes sense. But honestly, for a trafficking victims, they need even more therapeutic care. So I think trafficking, if you, you have to have equipped foster families that are, have experience and a lot of countries don't have that. So we've had staff that sort of, instead of being a staff person, they're now a foster parent or they're, they're more focused on that child because that's, that's just what a child needs. A shelter doesn't meet any of their needs, especially if they've been through that kind of trauma. So, um, I mean, I, there's so many lessons <laughs> that we learned a lot. I mean, you also, you have to be flexible and have grace in the fact that we've had some foster families break down, like kids that came back into our care and that then we needed to find another family for, and it wasn't anybody's fault really. It was more just that it wasn't a good fit. They never bonded. And so just being flexible to recognize that it's not going to be perfect, but it's, it has to change. And I think the biggest thing for us is recognizing that 
we're trying to tackle systemic family separation because we know that that leads to family, to child vulnerability. And if we don't start changing now, the, the, the problem's gonna keep compounding and it's gonna be way worse 10 years from now if we don't start. So I think even knowing that it may take a lot of time, but just get started, you know? Yeah, Ashley, this, as you're talking, I'm just having like a rush of past interviews going through my head. You know, I just think of, you know, you mentioned Mick Brandon and, and Ashley, you mentioned Mick as well. He's a great friend of mine personally and also a great friend of the podcast. We've, we just recast him at episode 122. If you haven't listened to that, yeah. go and listen to it. Um, I know you probably have Ashley and you've talked with Mick, so you've, you've heard enough of his silky smooth voice. Um, but, uh, but one of the things that, and also you said, uh, we, we talked about Delia Pop, and I know I'm, like she's got some great stuff to talk about all this. So the, as far as the, the, you know, practical lessons that are the actual, um, you know, transition part, you know, we've talked a lot about that. But what, what's really cool about this is you've gone through it. So it's, it goes from theory and it, it's also the practice. So these theory practice gaps, you're like experiencing as you're going, right? So one of the things I know a lot of people, it's a, it's a common, common objection people have, and I'd love for you to speak to it, is they don't even get to the actual transition objections, like the, the work. It's my donors will never go for it. Hmm. And the idea of, we have these people and we won't have funding if we do this. Can you speak to that a bit? Cause I'm sure it's been a, you know, some growing pains in the midst of it from that side of it as well. You talked about the founders and, and that side, you convinced that that's one thing, but when you have donors and you have your stakeholders in it, what has that conversation been like as you've been walking along with them, presumably? Yeah. Um, that's a great question. I think one of the benefits that we had is that I, when I moved back in 2011, I began doing fundraising for the organization. So there wasn't anyone here that was actually advocating or doing fund development or anything like that. And I never bought into the whole rescue children or the orphanage is the best place. So I never communicated in that kind of guise. So when I communicated, and especially because even my work was focused more in the communities, even while the children's homes were running, they were kind of being run by the Thai group. And it was my work. I began working in the community. So I was always talking about families and communities. So that was one really good thing that I had going for me because it wasn't a total draft, I mean, drastic shift. But one of the things that is really neat to be able to share is that historically we were able to serve 50 children and we were doing the best that I can, we could. We still, it, it's just by nature limited. Mm -hmm. And now we're able to serve over 3,000 children annually. And it's the impact. And I think when we tell stories about the family, it's just people get it. And I think those stories really help people understand why it's important and relating it to their own family and how important we know that relationship is. So I think just to be honest, we didn't have a huge hurdle in that sense because we had so much, because we had kind of always talked about the importance of community and family and that these kids had families. Um, but then I think, I think probably the biggest shift for people to overcome was just even this idea that the children's, that a children's home isn't the best place for kids. Cause I think that is, I, I will say that is one thing that we've had to a barrier because we work in a city dump and that there are children there that we work and we're, you know, there's always orphanage recruiters that are coming in and out asking if, you know, their kids need to have a warm bed and 
three meals a day and our team is going in and saying, no, you're the best person for them, primarily because those orphanage recruiters could be traffickers as well. Um, but we want them to know that they're the best for them. And I think we've had people in the past like, really? Like, is it really better for them to be in the dump than to be in a children's home? And we just have to, that's just the education piece that we have to communicate that you have all these kids that are aging out of children's homes that are just kind of floundering because they're never, they don't ever learn to be scrappy. They don't ever learn the like life skills that their context requires. And so being a Burmese, a person from Myanmar, I mean, you have to be strong. I mean, you have to be able to be resilient in the, in the, in your reality, because it's just, it's a difficult, they've, they face so many obstacles. And I think we just, that's something that's totally missing when you put them in a children's home. So I think just the education piece has been really important for us to kind of communicate with donors and people, people are way more understanding if you give them that tangible yeah. success stories and all that kind of stuff. It's not absolutely. Well, yeah. That's all. <laughs> No, I didn't mean to cut you off. I, I just, I totally agree. I mean, and I think what we forget a lot of times is that most of the people, it's an education because most people aren't thinking about it. Mm -hmm. So I don't even think they think like, oh, a children's home is the best place or an orphanage is the best place. I think it's just, that's what they know. Yeah. They don't know anything else. So for us to be able to come in and not assume that they're going to think one thing or the other, but to assume they really haven't thought much about it. So we're going to be able to help them and to start from the assumption that they don't know anything, not because they're stupid, but because they haven't thought about it. And why would they know it? Yeah. Right. So that's something that I think a lot of people, I think we project what we assume people think onto them rather than just asking them the question, hey, do you know anything about this? Mm -hmm. I'd love to share it with you. Yeah. Right. And I think we do that in a lot of things, but especially in this area, because heck, if we're just learning it, then they sure as heck haven't heard about it. Right. And, and that goes to something else I'd love to, you know, hear from you too, is, you know, if you've listened to the show at all, folks out there are like, yeah, you keep talking about it, Phil, we've taken a little break, but you're still talking about it, but it's this collaboration, this idea of working together and finding people who know more than we do about certain things. And I know you've done that. And I know Mick, you know, he's, he's bragged on you a ton. So, um, and you know, you're in Texas, you said you all, so I know you say brag on you too. So Mick, doesn't say that because he's all proper and British, but I know you say, it. but he definitely has. And, and I think it's because you have had, I'm guessing, I'm just making an assumption here, as I told, I just said not to do, but I'm guessing it's because you've had a humble posture and just a, and a learning posture, which we talk a lot about, which is such a big part of collaboration. So can you just speak to that as far as the idea of, I don't know is a good answer and learning from others and the important, not just the importance of it, but really the critical nature of that in the work that we're doing and how that's helped you to have that posture. Yeah, I mean, I think for us, we've just, I feel like we've been so blessed by the people that have been, that have come around us. So ACCI, we kind of off, like randomly got connected with them and then they were part of helping lead towards our transition and just encouraging us to do that in the first place. And it was kind of like, of course we want to do this. Is there a way to do this? Okay, let's do this. Um, and I just think we've, we just have to work together. And I've just seen it's so much better to be in partnership with people and to be able to learn from each other. I mean, I think everything you said, and I don't want to, I'm trying to think of how to bring it down to not be so lofty, but I, it's just, it's such a blessing to be in this space with other people. And Julie and I, Julie's my colleague, um, 
We pray every week that we could be a refreshment in this space and be an encouragement because this is really hard work and it's really, all of us are probably struggling with secondary trauma and don't even realize it. And just that we can't also then be trying to get the, the trophy for winning it or for figuring it all out, you know, cause we just all need each other. And I think because it is such a vast problem, it takes all of us doing our part. I mean, we're talking, I mean, so we're doing some consulting with a group in Tanzania and Brandon has provided input on that. We're connecting Georgina Hill. We're going to pay for her to come down. She works with Pamaja Aleo, if I said that right. Um, and so we're having people like, it just makes sense that the people that know the most in the space, wherever that context is, that they would be a part of the collaboration. Cause it just, it doesn't, it doesn't, I just don't know enough. <laughs> Maybe that's just it. I just don't know enough to do it all. So yeah. Yeah. And none of us do. And that's kind of the point, right? Like, and we don't need to, we have each other. And that's the beautiful thing about it. So that I just, I love it. I love that I'm watching it because it's something that I not only believe in fully, I've experienced the, the benefits of it. And I couldn't possibly do this stuff if I didn't have amazing people around me. So yeah. I just love that, that you're doing that. Thanks. It's, it's yeah. Amazing. And <laughs> And I was just going to add, you know, you guys are so um, intentional about that collaboration piece and wanting to help out and, and even going beyond borders like Tanzania and connecting with people like Georgina um, at Pomoja Leo. So shout out to Georgina. You got close. You know, anytime somebody mentions Tanzania, my heart flutters because that's, yeah. that's still home in so many ways for me. But, uh, you know, uh, you guys are, are, are putting your hands here and there and you guys are getting a lot done uh, through Global Child Advocates. And obviously one of the primary uh, places that you guys have been serving uh, has been in Myanmar. Um, and you know we're recording this um, here in the summer 2021 and, and earlier this year, as people are likely aware from newscasts and so forth, um, there was a military coup and, and there's been a, you know, a, a, a military, uh, what do you say, junta, junta, whatever. There's been, there's, there's been military control in that country before. And uh, unfortunately, uh, it's really destabilized. And uh, Global Child Advocates is there in Mesot, Thailand, um, which is right near the border of Thailand and Myanmar. Um, but much of the work that you guys have done has actually focused in Myanmar and among Burmese people. So when this coup took place earlier this year, um, you know, how has that negatively or adversely affected uh, orphans and vulnerable children in Myanmar. Um, we'll just kind of start at the at the kid level. I mean, what is what is all of this that we hear in the news? We turn on whatever our news station is, and we hear about this. What does it mean for for the kids that this podcast focuses on? Orphans, vulnerable children, at risk kids. What is what does it look like right now there? Um, the whole situation. I mean, it's like it was so broken before. And then it was starting to make this a little bit of progress, like for these 10 years and then, but you still had people on the bottom that weren't benefiting from that. Um, and so it just, the vulnerability has just increased exponentially, I think for trafficking, for orphanhood. I think during COVID, a lot of children, there was a lot of rapid reintegration. So you have a lot of kids that have been sent home from orphanages that are now in communities and families and that adjustment is happening. And then now with the coup, you just have additional stress put on families. And whenever that stress level increases, you just, there's just a lot more vulnerability for a child to be the brunt of a lot of things, you know, and even just of parents that are traumatized. And so 
Um, it's interesting because one of your questions was, has it forced us to stop our work? And there are aspects of it that it has. So the last year, well, I guess in 2019, before COVID, we were training organizations all the time. So I think 2019, there were like 31 organizations, like children's homes that we were doing advocacy with, that we were helping to try to move them, shift their mindsets towards family-based care. And we were really active in that. So that in, in a sense shut down, but then now it's like, so our team, um, at first it was a really heavy blow. Like, how is this happening again? Like we were so far, how did this happen again? And everybody felt like we've got to get democracy. We've got to get democracy. I'm sorry, everybody on our team. We're, I think we were all feeling like we have to have democracy. It's so unjust. And I think the thing that the Lord has really settled in us is that we need Christ. Like Myanmar needs Jesus and they need Christianity and that will supersede democracy. And so, I mean, our team is on fire and we just launched like three different teams throughout Myanmar that are doing evangelism and then also child protection training for communities and families. And it's just really neat to see them so excited about it because it's, they're so excited to have something to do to respond because it's just felt so heavy. And we've been praying for a long time that the Lord would show us when he, when this kind of became clear. Um, I asked Daniel, is it safe? Is it safe? Is this something we can do while there's violence and there's, you know, upheaval and everywhere is just chaotic. And he said, it's not safe for anybody. And so they're not going to be any less safe by going out and sharing the gospel and going out and reaching to help. They want to do that. And so, um, you can pray for us in that. Yeah, no, that's, <laughs> we definitely need prayer. Yeah. And, and, and so beautiful, you know, even just as you were um, sharing, um, you know, of course, democracy has a place. Obviously, this is the opposite of that. But but what you and your team are saying is, is above everything else, what we need is the, is the kingdom of God, right? And that's, you know, Mark 1, 14 and 15, Jesus was bringing the gospel of the kingdom of God. So when we say we need the gospel, it says we need kingdom ordering of things. And that's, that in and of itself is a government structure. And it's actually in those places where, um, where we see the exact opposite. We see turmoil. We see social strife. We see power grabs. We see you know military takeover. Uh, kids that are increasingly at risk of a lot of the things that um, us and your Thai and Burmese staff are are looking to address. Uh, and it's in those places where actually we get some of the best opportunities to actually put the gospel on display, the gospel of the kingdom of God. Uh, and, and I just commend you guys for stepping up. Um, you know, I, I think when I hear stuff on the news um, and you hear, you know, uh, obviously in recent years, there was a lot about the Rohingya and uh, the, the prevalence of refugees coming out of Myanmar and, and now with the coup, you know, it can be a little debilitating at times to actually be like, oh my goodness, this is crazy. There's refugees, there's violence, there's government takeover, there's this, there's that, you know, and sometimes we just have to say like, God, what do you want me to do? But when we hear about work like what you guys are doing, um, it gives us something to do. We can pray for our friends at, at GCA, or we can support their ministry, or we can um, reach out to them and, and ask them, what do you need? You know, you guys, you guys are literally sending staff into Myanmar right now um, to, as you said, uh, teach people on how to protect kids and sharing the gospel. I mean, 
how incredible is that, you know, and, and maybe that's all we can do at this point, but you guys are doing that. And, and, and I just think that's awesome. And, and for certain, uh, you asked us to pray and, and we will be, we will certainly be praying for, for that. Um, you know, uh, as we, uh, kind of, uh, get close to the end here of our podcast, there are a couple questions that we ask everybody and you've given us a lot to, to, to think about. And you have mentioned, you know, uh, people at ACCI, people at SFAC, people that you guys have been learning from. Uh, if we can maybe just grab a couple recommendations from you uh, before, before we close up. So what have you watched, read, or listened to uh, that has most impacted your thinking, whether recently or historically on how we can love orphan and vulnerable children with excellence? Um, I'll definitely say that the Think Orphan podcast is really helpful. I feel like you you take all of the experts in this space, and I'm I'm don't think I'm on that list, but I it's just really neat to you are on the list. You are on the list. You know, people that are working and have dedicated their life to it. So I think it's really helpful. I also really love the Archibald Project podcast. Um, they are good friends. They live here in Dripping Springs, actually, randomly. Um. And they just, I love that they take real life stories of kids that are in foster, of families that are doing foster care, adoption, and they just talk about the truth. And I think that's where sometimes we want to, so that people won't be discouraged to do adoption. We don't want to tell the real stories. And so I just love that they're, they're just being honest so that families know that they're not alone. And so I think that it just is more the practical, even when I think about direct practice and it helps to kind of even understand where people's minds are at. And so I love that. Um, I will also say, and I may be the only person that's ever said a Pixar film, but Home, have y'all ever seen it? It hasn't shaped my I'm thinking. I've not seen it. It's such a great example of happy human town compared to like an orphanage, kitty heaven, and how that little girl, she has a single mom and all she wants is her mom. And I just love that imagery. My kids and I all tear up every time we watch it. So that's, that's what I got. I have not seen that. I will yeah, I think I've seen Home out. about fifteen times. My yeah. kids, uh, my <laughs> my kids like that movie. So, I've, oh, let me let me rephrase. I've seen bits of Home, many many times. Um, I think I've seen it once or twice. No, I totally agree with that. Yeah, and there's there's lots of lots of it brings up a lot of other movies that I've seen where kids are just looking for, you know, home. That's right. Yeah. I mean, which which it seems like every Disney and Pixar movie, there's a, there's a semblance of that, right? Mm -hmm. the, that, that we made. I thought you were gonna say up with uh, you know, oh, yeah. forget the dude's name. What? Brandon. Yeah, I got it. Yeah, okay. If you watch up, you have to skip the first like 20 minutes because you will just cry and cry and cry. Then just you know, watch the little chicken guy run around or whatever. But the oh. first 20 minutes of up are just rough. <laughs> it's gold. I, I think that's They're what so I rough. love. It's it's real, man. It's real. Anyway, that's not what we're talking about today. We'll we'll talk about that some other time. I'll I'll have a we'll watch up together, and I'm going to show you the beauty of of up. But um, anyway, so yeah, absolutely, totally agree with you on that. And Archibald Project is a fantastic podcast as well. If you, it's very it's phenomenal storytelling. Those guys are amazing. So uh, the last question we always ask. Um, what person has most impacted your thinking on how we can love orphan and vulnerable children with excellence? You know, I was going to say McPeace because, I mean, he's made a huge impact on our work. And I feel like we've plugged him this whole time. And so he probably is in this space the most influential. And then I also think about my mother-in-law, Wanda. She is, if y'all would ever get the chance to meet her, Nobody will ever write, I mean, make a movie about her. And she 
I was so grateful that I fell in love with her son because when I was a little kid, I used to go into church and look for her and she would look you in the eyes. She knew everything about you and she would make you feel so loved and so known like a million dollars. And I watch her do that now. Every Sunday, there are kids that she come up to her, find her, and she lives in a place where there's a lot of vulnerability and she knows about kids that are being abused or kids that are foster care in foster care. And she just makes people feel so loved. And she herself was removed from her home when she was nine. She got placed into a home where she was treated as Cinderella and had a really hard upbringing. And the Lord has just made her an advocate for kids. And it's just really beautiful. So when you think, when you said the word shaped, I guess she has shaped the way that I want to love kids for sure. I love that. That's so cool. That's so cool. I just love how you say she looked you in the eyes and knew you. I mean, that's so, so important just to know and understand others. And I also appreciate the shout out for Think Orphan Podcast. I'm not going to lie. I know they're already listening to it, but that was pretty cool. Um, uh, and, and it wasn't, it was real. I could tell it wasn't like some people joke and say my book or the podcast or whatever, but that, that was real deal. So that was cool. Um, thank you so much, Ashley. Uh, this, this was fantastic. Love uh, getting to know you a little bit better through this interview. I know that we've had some meetings here and there, but never really had a, a extended conversation. So it's part of the reason I absolutely love doing this podcast. So thank you. And I, I do have to shout out Brandon first, like interview on this side of the mic. I thought you did a pretty fantastic job, brother. I don't know just about doing you, what actually. I can. Just doing what I can. I'm learning from the best, Phil. I'm learning from yeah. the best. Nice. Yeah. So <laughs> thank you so much, Ashley. Very much appreciate you. Yeah. Thank you so much. This has been really fun. Thanks, Ashley. And I'll see y'all at KFO. Yes. See you at KFO. Yes. KFO in September. Look it up. <laughs>Wow. Uh, just so much great content there from Ashley. Uh, awesome to kind of learn from their experience uh, working in Southeast Asia. Phil, I, I got to put it to you, man. What, what were some things that kind of stuck out to you? What were some of the highlights uh, from this conversation that we were able to have with Ashley today? I know it's going to shock you, but what really stuck out to me is just how they n- noticed an issue realized that changes need to be made and didn't just try to make changes. They sought out help. Talking about ACCI, Rebecca Knapp, who was on the show, she was with ACCI when she was on the show. She has since gone to work with uh, Better Care Network and, and those folks, but amazing woman. Uh, sought out her SFAC with Mick and Dan and Caitlin doing incredible work, right? So they they... Fortunately, sought out people who are pretty amazing, right? So they yeah. and they got yeah. the help. But you don't, you know, if you don't ask, you don't receive, right? So they were able to say, I don't know, have that posture, seek it out, learn, implement, and then tell the story. Right. So all it doesn't work without all the components. And there's more components to it, but that that simplifies it. But I love that that is what that's what collaboration's about. Yeah. Is to come in and do things together, work a common vision, and then work it out together. And that's what they're doing. And that's what SFAC does. And that's what ACCI does. And that's what a lot of organizations, that's what you guys at One Million Home do, right? You're coming in to work alongside. And that's what I loved about it is it's everything we're talking about on the podcast is lived out through what Ashley and Global Child Advocates are doing. And that is, it just makes me happy. Yeah, it's beautiful to see, man. It's so cool.
How about you, man? What, what, what stuck out to you? Yeah, you know, there's a couple things. Actually, one of the questions that you asked around donors, uh, I really appreciated to kind of get their insight. Um, you know, and I think I think the way that GCA handled their transition and just kind of the way that um, Ashley described her role within that as as one of those communicators with their donor base, um, I think it's enlightening. Uh, yesterday, I was actually on a call with a couple guys, one working in India, another guy working in Uganda. Um, and Brent Phillips was that guy who I know, you know, doing great work at Cherish Uganda. And uh, Brent was actually... Um, sharing just kind of their experience working with donors because uh, they also went through a transition. Um, and uh, he said, man, we didn't, we didn't lose a single person. And uh, people got the vision of what we were transitioning to and that we were helping kids get into families and that we were going to stay involved in, in the community there. And we were going to provide this service and that service. And, and I think it is sometimes, um, it's always something that needs to be addressed within the transition process, but it might be a little bit of a misnomer that if you say, um, you know, we've been doing this traditional uh, children's home residential model, we're going to transition to family care. So we're just going to expect that, you know, our revenue is going to cut in half. No, I think that's a misnomer. I think that if you communicate it well and you share the heart and say, hey, this is the next progression of what God's doing, of where we see the organization going, um, I think that, that donors can come alongside and can catch that vision. So it was encouraging to hear that uh, piece uh, from, from how Ashley kind of shepherded that within uh, Global Child Advocates and among their donor base. I think that's a critical piece, and I think it's something that people need to understand. Um, and then the second thing that really kind of stuck out to me, and one of the reasons I really wanted to reach out to, to Global Child Advocates to be on the pod, uh, is around uh, the situation in Myanmar. You know, when we talk about issues that are facing orphans and vulnerable children and and uh, we're thinking through, well, what does it look like to transition to family-based care? What does it mean to work in the community? What does it mean to to work with families or, or even kids that are in residential settings? Um, all of these issues don't happen in vacuums. All of these situations are happening within a given context. Um, and the more I get to collaborate and work with organizations in varied contexts, uh, the more I see just how important it is to um, to also look at what's going on in the big system, right? Um, when I think about people that have even been on this podcast, practitioners that are running uh, organizations, right? We, we had Marissa Stam, uh, with a Salamta Family Project, right? Mm -hmm. there's, a, there's a very urgent situation in the Northern area in Tigray right now. Uh, we had Spencer uh, Reeves on from Child Hope International in Haiti and, and a couple other podcasts per, uh, pertaining to Haiti. There is, there's a lot of political strife, a lot of kidnappings going on in Haiti right now. We just talked with Ashley. This is the situation in Myanmar. This is, this is what they're looking at. And, and it's having an effect on these kids that we are focused on. So we have to, um, we have to really look at, you know, what is, what is this context uh, leading us to do? And I think that what Ashley and her team, uh, led by their Asia director, Daniel, who's a great guy, um, what, what they have looked at is said, look, we're going to spread hope right? And we're going to train people on how to protect children. 
And we may not be able to keep training all these orphanages on how to transition right now, but we're going to continue those relationships and we're going to do everything that we can to make sure that kids are protected because the situation in Myanmar right now is just not great. Um, so I just think we have to bring in context and, and I feel mm -hmm. like the situation in Myanmar really kind of showed that. And that's going to be the case for any of these uh, operations that we look at globally. So um, just learn, I, I've learned so much from Ashley and the work that they do. She said she doesn't consider herself one of the experts, but we reached out to her for a reason. Ashley, it was right. great having her on and, uh, and uh, yeah, just, just awesome work. So those are the things that stuck out to me, man. I don't know. I don't know how those hit with you. Yeah. No, and I, I think that you, you hit something on the head there, which is it, it remind it goes back to when helping hurts, right? I mean, the yeah. most recommended book on this podcast for a reason. But talking about there is a time for relief. There is, but you know, it, it's not the norm. We make it into the norm. But there are times where yeah. it's okay to do certain work in certain ways that isn't the long term deal. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so to see that playing out is, is really good and to know the difference and to be able to discern that and then also have game plans for the different areas, the different things, relief development and uh, a rehabil rehabilitation development in When Helping Hurts. If you haven't read it, go read it. I'm not going to go through all those differences. Go listen to my interview with Brian Fickert. We talk about it a little bit and so other people talk about it too. Um, I know that Brandon and I are both uh, very big advocates of that book. Yep. And so um, go, but again, what Ashley was talking about was really giving a practical application of it. Like I was saying too, like a lot of what we talk about this, uh, this interview was a practical application. Spencer Reeves was also another one of those interviews where people they're, they're going through it. They're that Spencer's at the beginning of it, like in the middle of it. And Ashley's kind of coming out the other side of it a little bit too, yeah. and being able to enjoy some of the fruits of it as well. So I think that's just something that's been, I, I really like the interview for that reason, for those reasons. And so yeah, if, if you didn't catch that folks, go back and listen to it again, because I think so much of that was in there. I'm glad you pointed that out. Yeah, absolutely. So great, great interview today with Ashley. Um, and, uh, it's my it's my joy and it's my honor to get to our final segment and and to set this up. Uh, Phil, what are we looking at for recommendations? What do you what do you got for the listeners this week? What's something that they could be checking out? Well, now it's it's not Phil and Doctor Rick recommend anymore. I'm, no. I'm like you know I'm having all these nostalgia moments today, but now we get to have <laughs> Phil and Brandon. And I don't have my doctorate. Uh, we're going we're going Brandon and Phil. Do we say Master Brandon and yes. Phil? Uh, yes. 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 I have yes. my masters. Okay. I'm not Doctor Karen. I'm not Doctor Phil. But you can call okay. me Master Brandon. Or we could do Brandon. I feel, and I feel and like Dr. a Jedi Phil, if you say that. It's awesome. Whatever, Master Master Brandon. Well, I'm just starting to watch <laughs> Mandalorian too. That's not the recommendation, but I, I've been watching that with my son. So great series. Um, I enjoyed it. I enjoy. I'm not a huge Star Wars guy, but I but I did enjoy it, and uh, <laughs> we just got to to know what the child, Baby Yoda's name yeah. is. So that was fun. So you know where I'm at. Oh, your second season. So, okay. Yes, I am. So anyway, all that to say, that's not the recommendation, although that is a good show. Recommendation is a movie I actually watched last night with my my wife and my two youngest kids. I did an entire episode of it on how soccer explains leadership. Go check out the off-season uh, talk number four. It was released when this releases next month. It'll or in, in July. It'll probably be about a month old. But it's the movie is called Searching for Bobby Fisher, and it's about a, a kid named Josh uh, Waitzkin, and he's he was a chess prodigy. 
The reason why I recommend this on Think Orphan, the reason why I recommended it and did an entire episode on how soccer explains leadership is because this, this movie teaches us so many lessons about knowing our why, understanding the individual, and not trying to make someone into somebody that we want them to be or who we think they should be but to understand who they are and to help them to become the best version of themselves that God created them to be. And in the work we're doing with these kids, we too often try to make them into who we think they should be. We try to make organizations into who we think they should be. We try to make leaders into who we think they should be rather than who they are and who that what context they're in as you just talked about context to not take in the individual to not take in the individual case and to say, how can we help to develop you with your gifts and talents in your context, in your country, in your relationships? What does that look like? Folks, if you're not doing that, you don't even know what I'm talking about. Go watch this movie and think about it through that filter. Because they had this chess prodigy and they tried to make him into Bobby Fisher, basically. Yeah. The irony is Bobby Fisher was a train wreck of a human. <laughs> and they tried to make this kid into it versus the sweet kid that he was just to give you a taste they said to him if you want to be a chess champion you need to have contempt for your opponent and he says but i don't want to huh. wow they said you need to make them you need to hate them and he says but i don't wow it was so poignant yeah because he was if you know the disc he was probably an sccs personality a sweet kid cared deeply for people and they were trying to make him into this just competitor at all cost, win at all cost kid. And he's like, I'm not that kid. Yeah. He was mature. Now in the movie, he was mature beyond his years. And I assume the movie was, you know, doing it. But anyway, all that to say, that's why I recommend it. That's good. Man. Strongly recommend it. Go check it out. It's like a movie from the early to mid nineties. I saw yeah. it when I was a kid or when I was younger and it didn't have quite the same impact. I remembered I liked it, but, not for the reasons why and have no doubt that I'll be recommended to people all over the place. Yeah. I, I remember it uh, coming out in the nineties when you brought it up, I was like, Oh, I think that that's been around for, but those are the, those mm -hmm. movies, those can be some of the best. Uh, what streaming platform is it on? Right uh, now? Amazon prime. It's actually on prime right now. Okay. Um, hopefully it still is when you, when you uh, listen to this, awesome. but uh, if not, it's worth the four bucks or whatever it costs to rent. Absolutely. Okay. Good to know. All right. We're going to check it out on, on prime and great recommendation there, Phil. Uh, Hey man, Absolutely. this was fun. Uh, episode, uh, uh, well, episode two, uh, first guest, uh, season nine, uh, right. this was uh, very enjoyable. So, uh, thanks so much, man. This is fun. Absolutely. Well, thank you. And, and as always folks, you know, doesn't change because we have a new co-host as always, we hope and pray that you take everything that you're learning on the show and you help it to or you use it to help you to love orphans and vulnerable children better and better each and every day thanks a lot have a great couple weeks we hope you've enjoyed today's think orphan podcast for all the information in this week's podcast please visit us at thinkorphan.com. you too can be part of the conversation send your questions to info at thinkorphan.com or join us on the think orphan facebook page thanks for listening and we hope you'll join us again on the next edition of think orphan 
Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.